Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Seven Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Alex Catoni. She is the founder of the Copy Posse. She got her start in the marketing world 11 years ago at Mind Valley, which is one of the world's top online personal growth publishers, where she was part of the executive team that grew the company three times to over eight figures in annual revenue. Since then, she started her copywriting agency in 2012. Alex has proudly partnered with some of the top transformational authors and brands in the industry, helping them massively increase profits and grow their exposure. Her email marketing campaigns alone have generated well over eight figures in promotional revenue. In 2019, she launched her Copywriting Academy, dedicated to helping writers and entrepreneurs dominate their niches with words that work. Through her fast-growing YouTube channel with over 65,000 subscribers, social communities, and copywriting programs, she has helped dozens of businesses execute lucrative launches and hundreds of students ignite their copywriting careers. During this episode, find out all tricks of the trade and learn how to create a brand that works. And with that, please welcome Alex. Hi, Alex. So happy to have you today here with us. How are you? I'm good, Maria. Thank you so much for having me here. No, it's our pleasure. Okay, so we'll jump right in there. I've read a lot about you. You wanted to be a lawyer. And then in 2008, you decided to quit that and pursue a startup at the time, which is Mind Valley, which is not a startup anymore. They're huge. And you moved to Malaysia. Can you tell us more about the process? Yeah, I think, you know, like so many young people, you know, I had graduated high school, had, you know, done the next thing of going to university. And, you know, back then I really didn't know of the different avenues available for a career, like most people, right? Like we grew up thinking we can be a lawyer, we can be a doctor, we can be an accountant. And it's like, pick, you know, pick one of the boxes or it's like, you know, either that or you go into trades. It was like coming from a small town in Alberta, Canada. It was like, that's what you do. And so my twin brother was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And I'm like, well, okay, I guess I'll be a lawyer then, you know? And I remember feeling like that must be the path for me because I like talking. I like, you know, debating. I'm a great negotiator. It was kind of like, that must be the path for me. So I went to the University of Alberta, studied, I did a Bachelor of Commerce, but I majored in business law. So like my whole thing was like, okay, I'm going to set myself up so that I, you know, breeze right into law school. So I, I got a major in business law. I had a minor in marketing, which I actually really enjoyed, but I didn't really think marketing jobs existed. Like when I thought of marketing jobs, I thought like, you know, not like Mad Men was around back then, but I, I kind of pictured like a bunch of people sitting around a table coming up with slogans for like Super Bowl commercials. Like that was sort of my knowledge of what marketing and advertising must have been. Selling toilet paper and chips and that's it. Yeah, totally. And I'm like, well, okay, I don't think that's what I want to do. So anyway, I, uh, I was studying for the LSAT. I never actually went to law school, um, but I was studying for the LSAT like literally every single day. And it was in that process that I realized like, oh my gosh, I'm pretty sure I don't want to do this. But I didn't have the guts to like fully say at that moment, like F law school. But what I did know that I wanted to do was travel and through an organization at my university that sort of facilitated grads to go do internships with different companies around the world, I stumbled across Mind Valley, which at the time was, you know, yes, a startup, like you said, and they were hiring and I applied and didn't ever think I was going to get the job, got the job. They were like, we need you to move to Malaysia in a month. And I'm like, 
okay. So at the time I was bartending while I was studying for the LSAT. So I quit my job, sold my car, told my parents I'm moving to Malaysia. And they were like, wait, what? Um, And initially it was only supposed to be a six month internship and it turned into three and a half years over there. So yeah, that, that was the process. And I mean, I'm so glad I made that decision, obviously. So, okay. Question. How did you decide to actually drop everything and go there as an intern? Like, did they promise you the moon and the stars or you were like, I'll just going to learn and see what happens. For me, it was more of an adventure. And I think that's actually a really key difference with millennials in general is that money obviously is important. You know, I needed to make sure I was going to be able to feed myself, but I was not making a lot of money. Like the money was not why I went. I was making an intern salary, but you know, I think it was the equivalent of like $800 a month Canadian. However, I was living in Malaysia where the cost of living was significantly lower you know, I ate the local food that would cost me maybe like a dollar or $2, you know? And so, you know, it was at that, you know, phase in my life where I was like, this sounds like an adventure. And that was a huge value of mine at the time. Freedom. You know, I loved the uncertainty of it all. It was just like so exciting. And, um, you know, when I look back at sort of decisions that I've made in my business, it's always been those ones that like, where I kind of was like, you know what, this is going to be an adventure, even though it's a little bit terrifying. Those were always the best decisions that I made. I moved to Malaysia. I, I didn't even know where it was on the map. I had to look it up and I'm like, oh, okay, so it's like just below Thailand. I'd never really been to Southeast Asia. Well, I hadn't been to Southeast Asia at the time. So I moved there like literally with only having three conversations with people that, you know, now knowing about the internet, I'm like, oh my God, those could have been like any random people. I just like blind trust in the fact that they were, you know, it was like, I didn't know where I was going to be living. I didn't know anything. And I did, they were like, we have a room for you in an apartment. And it was like with two other guys, like two guys. And I had this like tiny little storage room that like hadn't been set up for me. It was like, they were a tiny company. They didn't have an HR department that like set up housing for you. So it was definitely like, I remember my first night, I was pretty terrified. But now you, it's good that you took a step because clearly the company grew. You added a lot of value as the founder uh, says on your website and always says that you went from an intern leading the team and built basically helped them build the marketing efforts. So what happened, you know, after that, did you decide to start your own thing and what led you to it? Yeah. So, you know, you know, I, I referenced values earlier about how, when I moved to Malaysia, adventure and uncertainty and freedom were a huge value of mine. And for three and a half years, I mean, I freaking loved what I did. I became obsessed with not only online marketing, because obviously I didn't know what that really what that was, but personal development, because Mindvalley is a personal development company and entrepreneurship, because I was also traveling to all of these incredible marketing events on behalf of Mindvalley and learning and going, oh my gosh, like there's this whole world out there. I basically got to a point where I was still super happy in my job. I loved what I did. I was the top marketer in the company at the time, aside from Vishen, the founder, and you know, a couple other people on the team. And I just felt that it was time for me to go back to Canada. You know, I love traveling the world. It be, it becomes such a huge part of my identity. I mean, my friends were like, would see me once a year, and then I'd like jet set back off to Malaysia, or they would see me in Bali, or Singapore, or Cambodia, or China. And that was my life. And it was such a huge part of my identity. And then at some point, you know, I come from a, a big family, a really close family. It was like, you know what, I really miss community. I was living in a very transient place where people would come and go working as expats for different companies. So I saw so many of my really good friends move back to their, you know, 
respective countries. And I just, I, it just came to the point where I was ready for a change. And so what I did was start freelancing. It was like, okay, I'll start freelance consulting for people, you know, cause that's what I knew how to do. I knew how to build sales funnels. I knew mark online marketing inside and out because of my experience at Mind Valley. So in 2012 is when I sort of started my consulting business. And at that time, I never really even identified as a copywriter yet. I, I had done copy, but I didn't really own that skill set. Um, so I was consulting. I guess you started your own thing out of necessity, so to speak, or you wanted to get a job, but then it just wasn't working out. So you, you decided to start your own thing. No, I did not want to get a job. So for me, it was like my do or die was like, after living in this environment of even though Mind Valley was a job, I had so much freedom and flexibility. And, you know, it was like, hey, as long as you get what you need done, done, you can work from anywhere, it's fine. And my thing was like, I am not getting a job. <laughs> I, no matter what. Um, I think I'd kind of gotten a taste of this freedom and I couldn't imagine moving back to Canada and getting like a nine to five. That's, that felt like death to me. And so obviously it was that kind of motivation. I had a bit of savings. And I just started networking like crazy. You know, I, I had obviously met a lot of people during my time at Mind Valley, but I just started to go, going to marketing events and, you know, use my experience to gain clients. And so immediately after leaving Mind Valley, I started consulting and it was never even an option in my mind to get a job. So then how did you find your first couple of clients? And that's question a lot of the times asked right now with young entrepreneurs or people who need a pivot, right? With COVID, a lot of jobs are obsolete. So a lot of people are sitting at home trying to figure out what to do next, becoming coaches, consultants. But there was fear of not being good enough, the imposter syndrome. And then how do you get your first couple of clients to A, prove your worth, and then obviously hone your skills, figure out what you should be doing? How do you get those first few? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I often like to say, and I say this to my students, like in order to get where you want to go, if you're really looking to pivot, especially if you're like, let's say you have a nine to five right now and you're working in a completely unrelated field and you're like, I want to start a company or I want to start freelancing or I want to start copywriting or whatever it is, you need training, you need access to obviously these clients and these people you want to work with. And then you need experience. And obviously experience comes with time after you get those first two things. Basically, I didn't realize this at the time. It's kind of looking back at my journey because so many people ask me how I started. For me, it was all about learning as much as I could while simultaneously getting as close as I could to the people I ultimately wanted to work with. So what that looked like for me was studying tons of courses. There's so much free training out there. I provide a ton of free training, but I think as much as you can, like learning and honing your skill set is great. So whatever skill set that is, whether it be marketing, whether it be design, whether it be development, like whatever it is that you want to do. And then the second thing is start figuring out where your ideal clients hang out. And I know it's a bit harder right now because of COVID and people aren't like going to events, but I truly, so this is kind of a crazy story. My very first client is still my client. And so they've been my client since January, I think January of 2012. So we're going on nine years of working together. That's crazy when I say that out loud. And what's amazing is I had heard of them before I knew of them because they had a personal development brand and, you know, I was in personal development for years, but I'd never met them before. And then I went to a marketing event in Phoenix, Arizona and just started networking and found out that they were there ended up inviting them over. We were staying at my friend's parents' place who had like a vacation home down 
there. So we had a little party that night and we invited a bunch of people who, I mean, we were like 25, I think. We invited people over to their, like our little party. We were making margaritas and they came and we just hit it off. We became like instant friends and they ended up hiring me just for a small project at first. And it was to consult them on a campaign they were doing to their marketing list. And then that kind of pivoted into, oh, we need a little bit of copywriting. Do you do copy? And I'm like, well, not really, but I can do it. I had this really weird, like I didn't own my skills. And I think this is really common. And I think a lot of people who are just starting out feel really uncomfortable owning their skills because we, we compare ourselves to like the people who we learn from. And we're like, we're not at their level. How dare we call ourselves this? It's kind of like that imposter syndrome, you know, sneaking in and I can talk all day about imposter syndrome. But I was like, I guess I can do it. And anyway, that's kind of what started me doing copy for this client. And then that relationship really grew. So it started off as being hired for one-off project, which then morphed into a monthly retainer, which then morphed into revenue share, which then morphed into me owning stock options in the company now. And they're now a partner of mine. So, you know, it really goes to show that relationship building is so important before you get clients, but then also once you start working with them, there's so much opportunity for growth with companies that you start working with if you are looking to become a consultant or a freelancer of any kind. I love this story. It's basically, you know, nine years of progress with one client. It's amazing. So then for clients that you are not maybe as familiar or it's a referral or you see a brand and you're like, oh crap, like they're great, but they need some help. I want to reach out and let them know that I exist and they should use my help. Who do you reach out to and how do you do those cold emails, cold calls, cold reach outs, or maybe you don't do them at all? Yeah, I'll be 100% honest with you. I don't do cold email and I never have because I've built my business 1000% on referrals. With that being said, I know a lot of people want that, but I am not a freelancing expert. Like everyone always asks me freelancing questions. I am not a freelancing expert. I'm a copywriter who's built my copywriting business. And so I, you know, with my programs and stuff like that, I bring in freelancing experts to talk about, you know, cold outreach and getting clients because I feel blessed in the sense that I was able to grow my business through referrals. But the way I look at it is I probably only got like four new clients in the beginning. And then every single client I ever got after that was through referrals from those four clients. And even those four initial clients were sort of referrals anyway, like people got kind of got wind that I was no longer at Mind Valley and people wanted to work with me. You know, I had that kind of experience to back me up. But like, I'll, I'll answer your question is if I was brand new, what I would do, because I think it's important. Like the myth that I want to bust for everybody right now, and I know every single freelancer thinks this in the whole world, is that you're like one out of like 10 million people who are vying for the same job. And I think that that's a total lie because from the side of actually hiring, like before I had the copy posse and I would actually have to hire writers, I would go on sites like Upwork and I would put up a job application. And I am very, very particular about my job applications because I know so many people just do like trigger applications. They're like, oh, someone's hiring a writer, apply, apply, apply. And they don't even read what it is that you're posting. So I'm like really strategic about my job postings. And I say, I'm you know, in the bottom, I'm like, here's how you apply. You, you use this subject line at the beginning of your application, you know, find the six typos in this application posting, tell me why you want to work with my brand. And if anyone doesn't answer those questions right away, it's like, I'm not even paying attention to you. And so I can put up a job posting and get hundreds of applicants. And I kid you not, maybe 10 of them will actually read and follow the instructions. And then out of those 10, there'll be like five who 
are tr- like truly took the time to research the brand and the business and share a personal reason why they want to work with the company as opposed to just like, I'm always looking to improve my skills and I'm, you know, it's like boring. It's like, tell me why you want to work with me. It's like copywriting 101. Don't make it about you. Make it about your reader. Right. And so I've always been so shocked at how few people are putting in the time to genuinely reach out to people, you know? And for me, um, I get messages all the time from people on DM that are like, Hey, if you ever want a copywriter, you can hire me. It's like, what? Seriously, that's your pitch? Like, no, you know, but then I'll get a, a, an email from someone who's like, oh my gosh, I love your brand. Here are the reasons why I want to work with you. Here's what I specialize in and getting hyper-specific too. I talk about this on a few of my different YouTube videos, but you don't want to email a client and I'm using copywriting as an example, but this can apply to absolutely any type of consulting or, or business freelancing. You don't email a client and say, hi, I'm a copywriter. I'll write copy for you. Because what you're doing is you're being redundant, first of all, and you're not really giving them a specific benefit that you can help them with. So they're thinking, ah, I don't need a copywriter right now because honestly, it'll just take me more work to figure out what I can get them to do for me. Like people don't want more work and hiring is work. You know, you got to like go through the whole onboarding process. You got to figure out like what specifically you need. You got to put together a scope of work. It's like, it's work. And so if someone then emails me and says, hey, I noticed that you could use some help with writing this kind of copy, you know, upsells or social media captions, or, and I don't need help with any of this. I have an amazing team. But if someone was really specific, I would be like, oh yeah, you know what? I do need help with that. And if I, if they could make me feel like literally all I had to do was like grant them access and they would deliver results and it wasn't any more work for me, I would probably be a hundred times more likely to hire them. I love that. I love that. Because you basically, yeah, going that extra mile and just putting the hustle and the effort. I think now as you were talking, I was thinking about reels. Like if somebody comes to you and says, I will do the reels, the content, create everything for you. So you just have to show up. I would be like, okay. Totally. It's so true. Like my social media manager does the same thing. She's like, okay, I'll do all of this. I just need you to do a video, like saying something about, about this. And I'm like, okay, great. I could do that. Like as I'm walking down the street, or I could do that. Like, it doesn't feel like a lot of work to me. But if someone came to me and was like, do you know that you're underutilizing your social media and that you should be creating reels and blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, "Eh." like, it's just like too much work, go away, you know? And so I think, you know, being as specific as you can, and it doesn't mean that that's all you're going to do. You're just leading with a really strong offer, which again is like marketing 101. You know, if you're selling your services, be really specific about the benefit that you offer. Oh, this is so good. Okay. So then in terms of referrals, how do you reach out to your clients who already know your value, know your worth, love what you do? And how do you tell them, Hey, refer me some of your friends that you know, or does it come organically? Do you actually ask for referrals? I think it actually happens organically. I've never asked for referrals. And that's because what'll happen is in this, in the business community, as soon as people start seeing what you're doing, they're like, Hey, who's your designer? Who's your social media manager? Who's your copywriter? And it just sort of happens naturally. I know for me, and this is part of the reason why I started the copy posse was I had so many people reaching out to me asking for copy work because of the work they knew I was doing for my clients. And I was like turning away copy left and right. I was like, I'm leaving so much money on the table when there could be other copywriters that I know and refer, but I didn't really know that many other copywriters. So I'm like, I'm just going to build a community of copywriters so that now I can refer all of my students, the work that I'm getting um, sent my way. 
But I think that you can ask for referrals. In fact, you know, that's something that I think is really common. I mean, you, you could even not gamify it, but you could even set an incentive to your client and say, look, I'll do this much copy for free if you send me like a referral once a month. Or, you know, if you do a video testimonial for me that I can put on my website. That's one that I, I do when I was just starting my copywriting business. I never like to lower my prices just because someone asked me to lower my prices. It's kind of like, you know, again, freelancing 101 is if, if, if I say to you, hey, Maria, that'll be $1,000 for me to write this thing for you. And if you're like, hmm, I only have 800, I'm not just going to be like, okay, because then all of a sudden you're like, okay, so I should have just asked for lower. I guess her prices are totally just fluid and don't really matter, right? So instead, if I really still wanted the job for 800, I might just say no. But if I still really wanted the job for 800, I would say, you know what? I have a letter load this month, so I, I can devote time to this. But, you know, in exchange for the lower discount, I'd appreciate it if upon completion of, the, of my copy, you could record a video testimonial for me that I can then put on my site to help drive future referrals and, and sales. So it's a value exchange in that way, um, which I think a lot of people don't do. They immediately are like, oh, they asked for a discount. Crap, I should just do it. It's like, think about the ways. It's like, okay, if you still want to do it at the discounted rate, what else can they give you? Because if you don't, then you're basically kind of telling them that your prices are arbitrary and don't really matter. That's such a great advice. And a lot of creatives that I interview, they have the same problem from photographers to video production agencies. They all say the same thing. You know, you don't help the industry if you keep doing the fluid pricing, as you said, and, you know, just keep reducing them, increasing them on the whim, because then there's expectation in the industry that you're supposed to do the same. Influencers have the same problem all the time. You know, if you're saying it's a thousand dollars in cash, you can't just turn around and say, I'll take... <laughs> cartons and cartons full of napkins and uh, chips and whatever else you want me to promote. So I, I think that's really good advice. Yeah, no, it all, there always has to be that two-way street. You know what I mean? Because then you're telling people like, hey, I am willing to give you something, but then you need to give me something in return so that you're still sort of like keeping the value there. I think that's so important. Yeah. Okay. So I guess what's your secret to writing your own copy? Do you write it? Do you have a team to write it for you? How does it work? So in the beginning, yeah, obviously I, I wrote it. I, you know, just like anyone who's just starting out, you're like, okay, I'm going to do it all. I was answering customer emails. I was doing my social media. I was doing my YouTube, all like obviously doing my YouTube videos. I was writing copy for my clients. I was writing copy for myself. It was like, you know, you're a one woman show, one man show when you're just starting out. But the first hire I made was hiring a copywriter, which was a big like move because good copywriters aren't cheap. And I had never hired really anyone before. And I think a lot of people, at least I find when you're starting out, sometimes the, the first people you hire are, are maybe like a VA or, you know, and that's great. And I, you know, I actually have had a, an assistant for a while, but, you know, to kind of jump in with both feet and be like, okay, I realized that I'm the biggest bottleneck in the area of copy. So I did hire a copywriter who's amazing and she still works with me. And then she started really helping me offload some of the client copy. I would still always have and still do always have the final say on any client copy that that we produce, but she would help, you know, take it 80, 90, 95% of the way there because I I really wanted to focus on sort of building my brand and building my personal brand outside of the agency work that I was doing. And so even now she helps me a ton. I think, you know, that's why I always I call it the, the copy posse because it isn't just me. I have an incredible team of of badass 
women behind me. So I have my copywriter, I have my social media strategist, I have my community manager who also writes some of my copy. So yeah, it's just sort of a team that's sort of just slowly, naturally grown to where we are now. I have five people that work for me now. I love this because a lot of people that we're interviewing who are successful and amazing what they do, their secret is they're not doing it by themselves. There's always a team of human beings behind them, whether it's social media, whether it's video production, whether it's customer service. So then when do you hire that first person? Like at which point do you know you need to level up and spend some money? You know, I've seen it happen both ways, right? Like I, I see people hire help too early and then they, they're like, oh shit, like I, I'm either giving them all, all of my money and I can't, I'm not paying myself anything, um, but we're not really growing or they hire too late or like I meet, I meet solopreneurs who are still doing it all themselves. And so I think it's really important to look at where your revenue is coming from. So like what, if you look at a revenue stream that's coming in, that is the easiest place to leverage and scale. So if you're getting, for example, client work and that's your only revenue stream coming in, obviously the best way to make more money is not to go like over here and start something different. Although that's what I did. You know, it took a while for it to become profitable, but you're like, okay, how do I then take on more clients so that I can make more money? So hiring someone who can essentially directly scale the revenue you're going to make because you can take on more people. At that point, I think you'll notice when you're sort of at your max capacity and you're not able to grow anymore because there's only so many hours in your day, or if you're feeling completely burnt out and you're like, oh my gosh, this isn't working for me anymore. I'd rather like not do this 90 hours a week. Then that's probably the moment that you want to start looking for help to replace maybe 30, 40% of what you do to free up a little bit of that extra time. Do you have like a formula for a budget? You know, if you make X amount of revenue or profit, this is how much you are budgeting to give away for extra resources, tools, help, or not really? Yeah, not really. You know, for me, when I first brought on my copywriter, it was a huge investment. At that point, I kind of had to look ahead and be like, okay, I'm not making necessarily enough money to cover her monthly retainer yet, but it's because... I've been turning away so much work that I just have to, once I bring her on board, know, okay, this is my additional expenses every month. I'm going to try to get at least that much more copy work every single month. And so honestly, I think it just is so different for every, for every business. For me, it's more of a personal feel. Like obviously if you're not making any profit, I wouldn't recommend hiring anybody because <laughs> then you're just going to go kind of deeper into the hole. And I think with all of the tools that are available out there right now, this is what's so great about now compared to, you know, 10 years ago. I remember when I worked at Mindvalley, I mean, everything had to be custom done, you know, everything, design, development, everything was like, you had to get these super expensive experts to build you a, a sales page. Now with the tools that are available out there, I mean, you have Canva, you have all of these like social media schedulers, you have tools to manage all your social media in one place. You have, you know, website builders and like, I mean, everything you could possibly need to make money online is like available to you in the form of a tool. And many of them have free trials. And I don't think that, you know, you, you need to start by necessarily hiring a bunch of people. It's like start with a small kind of minimum viable product and be like, okay, I can actually make money doing this and then focus on scaling, you know, make your first dollar before you focus on making your first $10,000. I love that advice. Don't just jump right. Just take slow steps, improve as you go, pivot. So I guess question would be, when do you know when to pivot? I mean, you had to. So 
how do you pivot? When do you know when you should? So it's not too late. Yeah. Honestly, I think every entrepreneur feels when it's that time. Like I know that's, I, I think, I feel like a lot of my answers are very like, you just feel it. But I'm like not a mathematician. I'm not an accountant. I'm not, you know, for me, when I pivoted. So for example, I was building my client business. And to be honest, I felt that I should have pivoted probably about a year before I actually started my YouTube channel. And I didn't because I was afraid of putting myself out there like so many people, you know, and I know people who know me now are like, really? Because I've always been outgoing and gregarious. And like, everyone was shocked that I was afraid to put myself out there. But you know, from being behind the scenes doing client work to then all of a sudden being like, Oh, I'm going to launch a YouTube channel and put my face on the internet. You know, that was really scary for me. But I felt that I, it needed to happen about a year before I did. And I didn't know what that looked like. It, I just knew that I wasn't feeling overly fulfilled in the work that I was doing day after day. Like I felt like I wanted to make a bigger impact. I didn't know what that meant. You know, I think the one thing that completely shifted my business was getting out of my own way and just doing it, which is, I think is a huge lesson, but putting myself on video, you know, I think people underestimate the power of video, but it is for sure by 2021, I mean, you know, 90% of web traffic will come through video. Like you look at the updates, all these social media platforms are making, it's to prioritize video. Okay. So in terms of video, then if I am new to the space and I have no idea where to go, what to do, and I'm just sitting and being like, okay, here's Instagram, Snap, TikTok, Facebook, all these tools, there's YouTube. What do I focus on? Do I focus on one thing, all seven things? Where do I put my efforts? Okay. I would focus on one. That's a really good question. Because again, right, there's only one of you, right? So I'm like rewinding back to late 2018 when I'm like, I'm going to start a YouTube channel. I chose YouTube because I just sort of liked the longevity of it. I liked that I had a specific skill set in copywriting that I knew I could train on, which I think is important in YouTube. Like people really love how to type content on YouTube. I've never been big on social media. Like now I have a, a social media following, but it's because of my YouTube. I mean, yes, people find me on Instagram, but it's, it's sort of this trickle down effect. So I would say pick one that you feel like you can really excel at and on a platform that you love to hang out on already. Like, let's say you decide you're going to become a TikTok sensation. If you like, don't always hang out on TikTok, it's going to feel like work when you're like, okay, I'm, new, I'm, I'm learning this new tool. I have to figure it out. Like go with the platform where you naturally hang out because ultimately I really, really do believe that you end up attracting the audience of people who are like maybe a year, two years behind you. It's kind of like your avatar is kind of like you, but in the past a little bit. And so if you hung out on Instagram and if you do hang out on Instagram, then maybe that's the route you want to go. But don't all of a sudden go, oh, I've never logged on to Instagram. I guess I should create an account because that's what everybody else is doing. You know, and that's the thing that I think frustrates me the most in, in the industry is sort of the copycatting that happens because people feel like, oh, if she's successful doing it that way, then that must mean that's what I have to do. You know, and it's good to model people and learn best practices. But at the end of the day, it has to feel authentic to you, you know? And you got to bring that extra something, that spice that will help to, I don't know, attract that following, the audience, entertain them, educate them. Okay. So you work with your brands and when you create copy for them on a marketing plan, they might come to you and say, okay, this is our ideal audience and this is our ideal client and this is what we're going after. And sometimes you look at it and you say, um, actually, it doesn't make sense. 
So how do you find or how do you audit whether, you know, the ideal client that you have is the ideal client or how do you find that? Yeah. So that's a really good question. I, um, I think in the beginning, like a lot of people, you just sort of take on the clients that you can get. Cause obviously you're starting your freelancing business. You need to get paid. So, you know, go after what you can get. And I think that's an interesting test in the beginning as well, because you really quickly figure out who you like to work with. And for me, you know, I've always really loved working in the personal development space, but then you realize like, okay, yes, that's the niche that I work in. But there's certain rules now that I have with the types of clients I'll work with even within that niche. Because for a long time, I had a, a terrible habit of attracting super high maintenance clients. Like, and it was my own lack of boundaries. Like, it's not nothing on them. It was like, I would work with people who would pay me a certain amount for a certain set of hours every month. And I would end up working like quadruple that because I wanted to get them results. And because I was showing up and working so much, they just kind of kept giving me stuff. And that was a huge lesson that I had to learn. I realized that that kind of took the fun out of it for me because I wasn't honoring my boundaries. And so to be honest, like the first thing I look at is the people, like the integrity of the person I'm going to be working with. Do I believe in their products? Do I believe in their business? Do I think that their mission is aligned ultimately with my own? Like, are they doing good in the world? Then I look at whether or not I think I'm going to have fun doing it because I think but we should all be taking on clients that are fun. And then only after that do I kind of look at, okay, is this ultimately going to get me further down my, my path of my business, whether it be more money, better referrals, higher caliber, like all of the stuff that does really matter. But once you're doing this for a while, you really realize that comes secondary to enjoying it. Like if you have someone who's like, can promise you the moon, and they're an absolute horrible person to work with, like no matter what, you never end up at the end of that project being like, it was worth it. It was worth it. Never. So I think what's interesting too, is the more you can get clear on that, the better quality clients you attract, and then the better quality referrals you get. Because it, you know, it can be really hard to say no in the beginning. But you know, my students have even said this, I had a student that, you know, she had finished my copywriting program, she was just starting her copywriting business. And she had a few new clients come across her desk. She actually turned them away. And these were the first copywriting clients that she got. And she's like, I just didn't, it just didn't feel right. I know that sounds like a woo-woo answer, but I think like you have to trust your intuition and then get really like, once you start working with more and more clients, you'll get really familiar with, with what it is that you enjoy about the process. So for example, you know, if you only enjoy the creative elements, make sure you're clear on that. Make sure, for example, if you're a social media manager that enjoys the strategy and creating the graphics that you make that clear. Like maybe you don't want to do all the commenting or responding to DMs, or maybe, you know, if you're a copywriter, you enjoy writing sales pages, but that you don't want to do blog posts because so many people think copy and content are the same thing. And so just getting really, really clear on where that boundary lies is just going to be really important so that you can stay in your lane and then continue to hone your skill and then attract better clients as a result. I like that, you know, making sure that I guess quality over quantity and then also the 2080 rule, you know, the, the 80% of your revenue comes from those 20% of clients who are awesome and never complain and never have any issues and never have any concerns. I truly align with that. I love it. So then if you're always busy and if you always have something going on, you're running a business, you're speaking, you're doing a lot of stuff on YouTube, even with the team you're still doing a lot. How do you stay balanced and how do you stay motivated? That is my biggest lesson in this lifetime, I swear. 
I was just saying to my boyfriend this morning and I'm like, my goal for December is to like slow down, reconnect with him because I feel like we've been so busy. We haven't had a lot of quality time lately. And you know, it's, it's a struggle. Like, you know, I wish I could tell you that like I do this morning routine every morning and I'm super spiritual and grounded. And it's just like, not, no. Some mornings I stay in my pajamas until 4 p.m. <laughs> Some days I am like on my phone before six and like answering emails. And so that is still a huge lesson of mine. And I, I think as an entrepreneur, you're always going to come up against those times, right? Like there were times when I was just doing client work that my schedule was so chill because my clients were chill and I would just kind of work whenever I wanted to work. I remember I'd spend like a few hours every morning studying Italian and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so balanced. And it was like amazing, but really it was just because I wasn't that busy. So it's easy to be balanced when you're not that busy. The trick is to maintain routine and find balance in those freaking crazy hectic times where your customer support inbox is never going to be zero. There's never going to be a moment where you answer every single DM in your Instagram, if you do have that magical moment, it only lasts for about five minutes. Or, you know, you get to a point where as you continue to grow, whatever that looks like for you, you're never going to be able to like close your computer at the end of the night and be like, I've done everything, you know? So you really have to prioritize yourself and be like, what, what has to get done today for my business? And then what is like my non-negotiable, like time to switch gears? I need to spend time on me. And that's something I'm still working on. And I think that the most important thing is to, you know, you'll go through weeks where you're like, what time is it? What day is it? Because you're so busy working to try to catch yourself when you get in that cycle and be like, okay, I need to like slow down. You know, my, my intention this week was to actually do a digital deep talk, which I've not even closely, I mean, here we are talking on, on Zoom. But, you know, I think it's important to kind of call yourself out on it, even if it doesn't look like this, like super balanced, um, every day you're following this routine, everything's perfect all the time. It's like catching yourself when you get out of balance, which I think is naturally going to happen at any point. I like that. I like that slowing down and then integration at the end. Like, you know, and I say balance, but I guess what I mean usually is integration because never everything is perfect. Like routine always gets screwed up. And even if you have one, sometimes it just doesn't align. So I like that you mentioned that sometimes you just have to slow down, put those boundaries and then figure it out. I guess, what's your trick on dealing with setbacks and failures? Because I'm sure not everything goes as planned. Not everything is super successful. How do you deal with those challenges? Yeah, I mean, and that's just a part of it. Like I talk quite a lot about failure and what that looks like. And, you know, one of my favorite things to say is the most successful people in the world are the most successful people in the world because they have failed more than anybody else. Because that means that they've at least tried. I get it. Like, that's why I didn't start my YouTube channel for a year after thinking about it, because I was like, what happens if nobody subscribes? And then I'm like putting all this work into it. And then like, and then not only will no one subscribe, but then I have this like very public display of my failure for everyone to see if anyone did ever find it. You know what I mean? Like the stories we tell ourselves about why we shouldn't start. And honestly, if I could give anyone any advice, it would be like, you are going to fail. So you might as well just get it out of the way. You know, I've had businesses that I've invested tens of thousands of dollars in. Like, I'll give you an example. Last or this year in, in 2020, I have a business partner in another business and it's in the travel space. And we invested like $25,000 into hiring a marketing company in January and February. And then COVID happened and literally it was like 
travel is at a standstill right now. And that freaking hurts. You know, you're just like, are you kidding me? Like that never got off the ground. I don't even know what's going to happen, you know, to that business now, but high likelihood, nothing, which is a hard pill to swallow sometimes because we get so attached to all of, all of our ideas. But the more ideas you have and the more things you try and the more things you fail, you're just like, okay, that didn't work. Well, that's good because I have like 19 more ideas over here. And then you'll get a win at some point. And you'll be like, oh my gosh. And then, then that'll be like, okay, so I'm not crazy. I am doing something that is helpful. It's just not that first thing, you know? And it's just part of the game. It's part of the business. And I think that it took me a long time to even realize that because I'm sort of a recovering perfectionist. And I think I wanted to be able to say like I had a perfect track record and I never did anything that didn't succeed. And it's like, it's bullshit, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, they say that, you know, on average, entrepreneurs what start seven businesses before they hit that $1 billion unicorn or something similar to that. So I can totally understand that. And I'm sorry to hear about the company and the travel industry that 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 sucks. So I feel your pain. It's just timing. And you have to just laugh at it, right? You have to be like, who would have expected that a global pandemic would have hit and absolutely knocked up the travel industry? You know, like, Nobody. Well, maybe some people. Actually, a lot of people predicted this would happen, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I know. And sometimes you just have to take it and say, you know what, on to the next one. As Malcolm Gladwell says, it's 10,000 hours. So the more time you spend, the more losses you have, the more wins you'll have. It's just how the numbers work. Okay. So if you could go back to a younger self, what would be your advice? I think, I mean, I think I've already hinted at this, but it would be like, stop waiting. Like, just start sooner. Because I think it's kind of crazy when I think that like, okay, you know, I, I started freelancing in 2012. And I didn't actually start like building my personal brand until 2019 is when I started my YouTube channel. Um, and I'm like, seven, what was I doing for seven years? You know, and I was coasting. I really was. I was coasting. I had clients that were paying me good money. I was spending summers in Italy. I mean, I was living the life. But I wasn't challenging myself. And I think at the time I told myself it was because I had everything I wanted and I valued freedom and I didn't like to have a bunch of work to do. And it was fun just like traveling and that's all great. But I think if I was being honest to myself, I was afraid of trying something and failing. And so my advice would just be like, just start. And you don't have to come out the gate guns a-blazing. Because that's the other thing too is I think this puts things into perspective, right? My biggest fear was like failing. And, you know, and then you kind of like, well, what does that look like? At the time, if, if I, you know, what I told myself was, oh, I would like start a YouTube channel and like no one would find it and no one would subscribe and like, oh my God, like that sucks. It took me six months to get to a thousand subscribers. Six months. Someone could look at that. If I stopped at five months and 29 days, someone might have said, oh yeah, she like launched her YouTube channel and nobody subscribed and then she just kind of stopped doing it. And that could be considered a failure. But instead, it's like, oh, now I have over 65,000 subscribers, I think. And I just kept going. And it's just like those little incremental wins. I, I know everybody wants to be like this blowout success. And there are times where when people look on the outside, like you might have found me on AdWorld and be like, who is this girl? She came out of nowhere. But it's like, that's not, that was not my experience, right? My experience was like, for the last two years, I've been like grinding. And you're like, I've been doing this for the past 10 plus years. So like it didn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> but, it, but it was hard work. It's just, you know, you get to that moment where all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, that hard work is paying off, you know, but it takes hard work. I'm glad you're sharing that because yeah, there's no such thing as an overnight success. Everything overnight took five years, a decade to build. And you're right, you know, consistency is the longer you stay in what you're doing the more chances you'll have to succeed. And that's where you just basically proved. Like if you stopped at five months, well, that all that would have been, but 
I think the growth is also exponential, like a hockey stick growth. I work with a lot of tech companies and that's what we see all the time. You know, it's very flat for a very long time. And then once they start growing, it starts really fast. Okay, books, resources, podcasts, anything you could recommend to humans to be as awesome as you are? Books, I'm a huge fan of like marketing and psychology books. I know I referenced a few on the presentation that you saw me speak at, but I love anything from Robert Shildini. He has two books, Influence and Persuasion. The thing I love about those books is they're not copywriting books. They're books on psychology and influence, which can help you in any area, you know, whether you're negotiating with clients or building your business. So those books to me are super fun. I also am just a big fan of fiction books as well. I think I went through a phase where I thought every single thing I did had to be somehow productive in my life. Like, how dare I read a fiction book unless it was like maybe Christmas vacation and I was like giving myself a little treat. So honestly, I've really started reading more like historical fiction and stories because you know, creativity is so important and you need to give your brain a break. So I love true crime podcasts. I love comedy podcasts. Aside from books and then the occasional business podcast, I don't do a lot of personal like business podcasts unless it's like a really specific topic that I'm interested in. For me, it's like lateral learning, right? Like go listen to the Savvy Millennial podcast, but then like go over here and watch like a masterclass on, you know, how to basket weave. I don't know. But I just really think that you need to give your mind that like lateral learning. I'll like read a book about something totally unrelated to marketing and business, which will spark an idea for me, you know? So I think giving yourself permission to like consume a whole bunch of different types of information, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You got to give yourself room for creativity. And that's what you're doing. You're creating room. And again, a lot of people on the podcast say the same thing. Like they, some of them stop learning. So they will do a lot of books and podcasts and a lot of things that they're trying to consume, consume and learn. And then they say, okay, this is enough. I'm going to go and execute right now. or I'm going to go and get some time for myself. So totally know what you mean. Okay, so everyone who comes on the podcast gets the same question at the end. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. A millennial is creative and innovative. A millennial should be. A millennial should be fiercely real. Ooh, love this one. A millennial is not. A millennial is not afraid of what anyone else thinks of them. Pretty accurate. I think we're pretty, we're pretty ballsy, if I can say that. And, I, and that's what I love. That's what I love about sort of millennials taking over the airwaves right now. It's like the people who are really standing out are the ones that just don't give up. So that's how I would define it. I love it. Okay. Where do listeners find you, connect with you, learn more about you and uh, obviously what you do? Yeah. So people can check me out on Instagram, which is at Coffee Posse. Uh, I'm also on YouTube under Alex Catoni and my website is alexcatoni.com. Thank you, Alex. You've been amazing. I can't wait to catch up in 2021 and see how everything is going. Thank you so much for having me, Marina. This is awesome.